Welcome to the Climate Conscious Podcast, where we discuss all things sustainable. I am your host, Deval, and joining me today is Gareth Manwarren. Hola, Gareth. Hola. Bienvenido a mi podcast. Gracias. <laughs> so, Gareth Manwarren is an economist and management systems consultant. His background is in economics and computer science. He also holds a Master's of Marine Management from Dalhousie University. His expertise includes the design, implementation, and continual improvement of management systems in a range of sectors including oil and gas operations, fisheries, and communities. I first met Gareth when I was an intern and he was the department head for health, safety, and environment at an oil and gas company. Gareth has over 40 years experience conducting environmental, social and economic impact assessments throughout Trinidad and Tobago. During the period 1982 to 1986, Garrett participated in groundbreaking research on environmental impact assessments. Through his research, consultancy, and work in industry, Garrett has championed the systems approach to management, which is fundamental to sustainability. So, Garrett, our common future, also known as the Brunson Report, defines sustainable development as development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So, this is quite a common definition. What really is sustainable development? What are your thoughts? Sustainable development or sustainability is, for me, is really about survival and it's survival of any entity any being you have animals go through a life cycle you have humans physical space or environment or communities and that is located in that physical space as an example you can have your community could be located on a plain in a mountain in a valley mm-hmm. close to a swamp so all these I consider to be entities, and I consider each of these entities as having a life cycle. Each of those entities would like to go through a normal life cycle, and that is where my concept of sustainability comes in. For example, us as human beings, I would like to live through a normal human being life cycle, which today, depending on which country you are in, could be anywhere from 50 years to about 80 years in Europe right now. Right. It's considered to be a minimum life cycle. How do you move through from birth, or even better, from conception, Mm -hmm. to that? And then what happens there? So if you take a tree, the tree might start from a seed or from a root part, send up a suckling. What the tree does is from small it grows up, forms, it produces fruit, it produces other seeds, it scatters that, we we'll leave it up to nature to scatter it and hope that it continues and continues. And therein lies my concept of, of sustainability. And if you look at those components that I have just mentioned, in reality, for humans to be sustainable, they need the environment. They need economics to be able to produce. Each of these come together. So we will do it first as a human being in your home, in your area, you have your village, and your village depends on 
a region, then the region is the country. So we have the Trinidad and Tobago. And Trinidad and Tobago needs the Caribbean. The Caribbean needs the world. Yes. The world needs the universe. So everything is linked, but normally we tend not to see that link in the process. If your environment is polluted, the likelihood of experiencing that full normal human life is reduced. Correct. So you mentioned all the different layers that are essentially linked together. Beginning with the individual, the home, community, country, to a global system. So can you expand a bit on that in terms of the system? Can I put it in terms of, for example, if, if, if you, you mentioned the Brundtland Commission, right? Yes. The Brundtland Commission came out of, the first thing was really, in 1972, you had a UN conference, which was really the first UN conference on the environment. And within that conference, out of that, 10 years later, a commission was appointed. And the commission sought to look at all before that time, human beings in general on the earth had access to plenty of resources. Wherever you want in it, you had land, you had trees, so people were able to cut down trees and create better homes. Then it became an industry like um, the lumber industry. We found oil, we produced many things from it, and people depended, we built economies. Countries got rich, some much more so than others. And out of that concept of um, how all of these things are linked is... You have the land. If you're going to have a a, a project, when you locate that project, you have to have a location for it. And if we take what, so we take it like, you you mentioned my first project, Point Lisas. Point Lisas was being located in an area that was formerly swampland, sugarcane, small sugar export port area. export sugar in the Kuva area in Trinidad. Right. You had people living um, in the region around that and they all depended on one another. So from when I talk about a system there, if you're going to put that project there, you need first to have an understanding of what is there and how those things interact with one another. How does the sugarcane, which was, and there was the entire sugar industry, how are the communities around depending on, on the sugar industry? What happens? For example, we live in a hurricane zone. What happens when you have heavy rainfall? What happens when you have strong winds? What is the direction of the water flow? Everything in the physical space has to be understood and how they interact on each other. And therein lies with that understanding whether or not your system, in this case, and I would like to put the whole thing as I defined it as ecology, that human beings are seen as part of the ecology, not as something above and superior to the ecology in the area. Right. So once once you can understand those linkages, what is that ecology seeking to produce? How do each of the entities you mentioned continue to exist and survive in that area? And therefore, how are you going to ensure that those entities continue to exist for generations to come? The resources, 
the entities are not there just for this generation and this generation alone. So we as human beings, for example, right, we come up, um, we find oil. We, we want to take all the oil out as quickly as possible and convert it to dollars. Yes, and that ties back to the definition by the Brunson Commission about sustainable development, which speaks to meeting the needs of the present generation and also the ability of future generations to do the same. So, yeah. in a in a world of instant gratification, how do we manage the competing demands of present needs and future needs? It's impossible to achieve that object in that in that type of and and it was out of that that the Brooklyn Commission came up. Right? There was a group of countries and more the Nordic countries in Europe that was beginning to see the way that human beings were developing and countries were developing. Each generation was able to have than the past generation. And they were seeing that the resources that exist in the world, in countries, not being able to maintain that trend. So, so limits to growth. Yes. So that instant gratification was leading to really a move from a sustainable economy into a more profit-oriented, money-oriented economy. So people were seeking to convert natural resources to dollars. But what were you going to do with that afterwards? Because wealth, social status, military might are only one aspect of life. You still have to be able for the human being to survive. What are the basic things that we need? Air, and that air must be of a certain quality. Water, that water must be of a certain quality. Food, that food must be of a certain quality. Those are the basic things that we need. And if by instant gratification we are polluting the air, polluting the waters, using up arable land for infrastructure development, housing development, it is impossible for the human being to start um, to be sustainable in, from generation to generation. So they realized that this conflict was becoming overwhelming and they sought to get the United Nations to do that. So 1972 was that first UN environmental um, meeting at mm -hmm. that scale. And then by the time they got to the commission, which was established around 1982, and I think the report came out somewhere around 1987. Right? Yes. One of the things, one of the main things in, in, in that commission was gender equality and the impact of development on natural resources. The Commission sought to get the viewpoints, not just of, you know, the big countries of the world, the European countries, the US, Canada, and those big countries. They made sure in the Commission that they had very good inputs from developing countries, underdeveloped countries. And it's just out of that, they were able to get this report that went forward. And that brings me to another question. So as one of the pioneers of sustainable development, both internationally and locally, you have witnessed its evolution. Um, in 1962, there was Silent Spring, which looked at the harmful effect of pesticides. Then 1972 came the limits to growth, which you just spoke about. Um, and then 1987, our common future, also known as the Brunson Report. Then in the 2000s, we had the Millennium Development Goals, 
And today, we are pursuing the Sustainable Development Goals, which span 2016 to 2030. So, you've not only been a witness to this evolution, but you have been actively involved as a researcher and consultant and also as an industry professional. So, what has been your involvement with the evolution of sustainability? I listened to your podcast with the teacher from Prisali. And he indicated what he was doing. And I would like to put that into the context of both the systems approach and in telling you what my role is. Okay. At the individual level, which he mentioned, and we have we are empowered from an individual level. So each student has a power and then you go out to the group as a class and you expand. And that is first you must have awareness. So I you must have awareness of what those entities are and how they are. Then you must have learning, so you could be aware, but then you need to go do research, and whether as a child or a student or researcher or a worker later on. So you have awareness learning, then you, you learn by doing. So this is your stage, let's say, anywhere from 17, you start working. And I refer to that phase as doing. But in that phase, while doing, you explore, you create, and you finish by sharing, right? So that's the core approach we're doing. With me, my involvement around the concept of sustainability really started as a child, mm-hmm. right? Where my grandparents, when I was very young, under 10, I go by my grandparents, they would take me in the garden in the back. And they were planted. Now, my grandparents experienced the Second World War. Okay. And they had real problems to feed themselves during the war. Because like now, there was very limited movements of ships and those things carrying food to and fro. So trade, just trade is having a negative impact now with the virus. So people have to depend on the what they were planting to take them through. So they explained that to me. So I had that concept in my mind that you should always have a backyard garden. Mm-hmm. And today, right, here in Spain, and I'm sure people will be thinking about it, if not talking about it, but here in Spain we're talking about it more, is if you have a garden, you're likely of getting through this coronavirus lockdown, right? Or if it gets worse and extend for a long period of time and there's no movement of food, you, you might be able to sustain yourself longer. So we have that. And that training then expanded at primary school level where because Trinidad in my primary school time was mainly dependent on agriculture, sugar, cocoa, and coffee, and subsistence farming had really taken root. So we were producing a lot of the things that we were consuming. Right, the primary school um, curriculum had where all primary school students, the school had a garden and we had to go and learn how to do gardening and stuff to prepare us to go and work in the agricultural industry. Okay. Secondary school with the sciences, access to sciences, by then, you know, a lot more persons like, for example, who were able to were attending free secondary school education. And this is we in the 60s, the late 60s, right? early 70s and getting access to in the learning part of the, the sciences and that helped prepare me for industrialization. Right. And Point Lisas came at to started around the end of the 70s, so secondary and university. 
help me prepare, prepare for that. So, like, for example, in my final year at Dewey, while Point Lisas was no starting construction, I did for my economics final year, I did a paper on the economic impact of the methanol plant on Trinidad economy. And I think that is one of the things that attracted some people at IMA and I was asked to join IMA. Where IMA had just, in, in planning for the construction, IMA, which then was a UN agency, had done studies for Point Lisas to map the ecology of Point Lisas area. Mm-hmm. But these studies were done and using the component approach. So the biologists went and do this, the fisheries scientists went and mapped it. And I was brought in to map the social, so the communities and the people and what they're doing, how they live, they, and the economic, which is the economic activities present in the area there. So having done that now, the person who I consider to be the real pioneer of the EIM movement in Trinidad, Ms. Hazel Maxine, former director of the Institute of Marine Affairs. But at the time I'm talking about, she was a senior research officer. Okay. Right? She wanted to test this new methodology was being mentioned on the international scale because we've been in this industrial estate. Construction had started. So I was recruited straight from university to work with her. She was an ecologist, right? And then using the wider skill sets that was available in IMI. IMI was a lot of master's students, a master's professional, PhDs, right, and first degree are all related to marine science. So I, as a social scientist, stood out in that environment. But I was really brought in to bring out the social side of it, the economic side of it, into the equation. So that is where we started looking at projects from that. And the test case of Point Lisas was turned out to be very successful. Mm-hmm. When we looked at the integration, it was really kind of the test case for an introduction to multidisciplinary approach to planning for development. Coming out of that, our report was completed and we found a the key thing with an EIA is that you you set out to minimize or if possible eliminate the negative impacts that whatever development you're going to do is going to have on the environment in which it's going to be located. The negative impacts that is going to have on the, so- the social structure, the cultural structure of the area that you're going to locate this project in. The business structure, you're going to enhance that. So the Point Lisa's project there, the Coover area was quote-unquote dying because Carony Limited was closed down. So based on the idea, advice from biologists, the fisheries people, I mean, methods were developed that where they could do it with minimizing the impact on that. So you have, for example, the two fishery sites around Point Lisas, Calibay to the north, and you could go even up to Waterloo, and you have the um, Paxton Bay to the south. Yes. They continue to exist today. And 
Whereas there was a lot of fears of what that going to do to the fishing industry and those kind of things. Those didn't really map out. That was negative. So it says in the end that Point says was a success story. So you map that learning and you come there. So from the Point Lisa's industrial estate, I learned a lot about downstream oil development and its impact on the environment. Later on, towards the end of my career, where you and I met, I had the pleasure of all the suffering of actually, you know, working as a consultant all along. I did work for BP, did work for Exxon, different parts of Trinidad, BG, and I was challenged to come and implement some of your recommendations and see what it was like. And that is what I did for the last 13 years of my career while in Trinidad. So in that process, you got to see, okay, I got to see experience, A, from a student through to full responsibility for ensuring that these things happen, right? So if you would recall when we were doing that last EIA, which you led before I left Trinidad, um, and the interactions we had with the, when we were having those community consultations and how they were interacting with us, right? Yes. It, it helped me understand, okay, it is all good to do research mm-hmm. and to make recommendations. But then you come and you, when you start interacting with the public, you start seeing, well, okay, the recommendation might be good enough, but how you do it is the most important part of that aspect and the interactions with the community. So we always at IME, when we were doing EIS, we interacted with the community, we interacted with the people, we interacted with the environment. So you, you, you identify certain species, you do research and understand how those species move. So you go at night time and see what species they are, how they move, what they do. Right? So when you are planning to minimize that impact, you cater as much as possible for all the beings that exist in that area and how you can facilitate they continue to live their normal life cycle with the project. So you've given us a very, I would say, in-depth insight into the EIA process. And it is currently being used as a tool for sustainable development. How do you see us moving forward with the sustainability movement? EIA is a fantastic tool. If done right, you can achieve harmony. And that has happened. And it has happened almost worldwide. A lot of areas... The kind of you know things you saw, for example, like the movie with um, Aaron Brockovich. Yes. A lot of those type of projects, which was done many years ago, you don't see that. Happen. It's very difficult for those things to happen now. It still happens. There are still things that get hidden. But whereas before, in my childhood and even my teenage years, you could be lying in your bed and you hear bulldozer moving. A morning, and then you go and you see an area that is clear, declaring area, and you go and play, go and do, and then you hear about that project. It is very hard for that to happen. What I find that has come with that is a number of obstacles are now put in place for projects, and the proper analysis is not done. When you go to the community, you know, the big thing is about compensation and how much compensation you could get, on, for example, with the fishing community, right? 
as you were aware with some of the things that we did in 2015. Sometimes I think people don't understand, right? Human beings, for humans to be sustained and to move from generation to generation, you need to have production because production is the way in which we feed ourselves. Basic agriculture no longer meets that need. We have to import, we have to export, right? We have to have money to be able to buy the things that we no longer can produce at a reasonable economic cost, right? So like, for example, when you're competing with China, there are things China to produce at 10% of what you, it will cost you to produce in China. So, you have to have business, and the question that we need to look at when we're looking at EIA and the sustainability process, you have to look at it in that holistic manner. I mean, there's so much that we could discuss around EIAs and your experience in research and also in practical implementation. But I want to thank you for that insightful discussion, and I would love to have you back on the podcast again so that we can continue this discussion. As we close out, um, what are the final takeaways around the EIA process? My main thing at this point, um, I am semi-retired. <laughs> Semi. <laughs> I, um, is going forward, the future. I would really like to see at our academic institution, starting from primary school, that we really move from the component approach, you know, like when I was in school, it was either in science or in arts. Right? That got expanded while I was in university where, you know, we had a middle ground with um, geography in particular, coming in the and bridging between the science and the arts. Right? That we really start training from primary school. I see it here in Spain, they do it from kindergarten where they expose children to, okay, this is your area, this is around your, your home, this is around the kindergarten school, this is what it is, done. this is the trees, this is the river, this is that, and how they all entering, and what you get from it, how they benefit from it, and that training goes all the way through the system, right? So I would really like to see that taking place. It starts at the individual level. Yes. I have to want to be sustainable, and therefore I, I share that with my family. I share that when I have my own family. I share that with my friends, and you expand out to the community, and we build to that national consciousness. When we have a project like, for example, the port project at Toku, from sitting here in Spain, I am shocked. When I hear a project like that come up and the debate start all around, IMA did an EIA for putting a port in Toku in the 1980s and looked at site from Balandra go around to Grand Rivier. Other studies, because other times the project was supposed to move ahead, other EIAs were done. Other projects have been done in the area. I would like for those who are in secondary school and university to go to IME, go to EME, go to UE in the engineering department, go to the Ministry of Energy, go to Tongan Country, ask to see some of these historic things and look at it. And before we come to support or to say this is not the scout, I would like to see that. I would also like to see that 
we work together with people in the community. We empower people together in the community. We spend time training the community so that they are able to interact with us in a meaningful way. Because when you do that, I can assure you, regardless of who you are, whether you are multinational or you are a small, single businessman going to do a project, you will benefit and your project design will improve so that A, that project is likely to be sustainable for its design lifetime. The community and develop because nobody wants to be the same with all of us want to increase in salary. All of us want to improve our living condition. How are we going to do that? We must see projects in that context. How does it contribute to that? Is it the best thing to give compensation to one group in the community or is it better to say, okay, you can continue to fish, I'll use that fishing as an example, right? Mm-hmm. But what the community needs, a good medical facility, can you contribute to that? Whether you work with government, contribute to that. We need a, a, a school, we need better roads. And these are some of the things that are taking place in other countries, especially in Latin America. So that country becomes more sustainable, the community becomes more sustainable, the household becomes more sustainable, and the individuals have greater likelihood of achieving that survival that I call sustainability. Here, for example, I was happy to hear your colleague last week when he was putting it across. He was teaching the children what they could do. He empowered them. I have tried throughout my professional life cycle to share what I have learned with those around me, my colleagues, and those in organization, whether with at EMM, Ministry of Energy, other companies, what I have learned, right? And I am talking to you with a sense of pride because, as you said, you, we met when you came in as a graduate trainee. Yes. And here you are at the stage, you, you are sharing with others via the, the new technology. You are doing this and educating people. I congratulate you on that. I am seeing lots of things coming out now where government ministries are putting things out via using the internet and stuff. It almost seems that coronavirus is helping us start to use the tools that are available to work for us and improve our likelihood of sustainability. Yes, corona has been a disruptor in both negative and positive ways. Yes. So people are fighting because people want to be sustainable. People want to survive. Thank you for allowing me to share with you. Yes, thank you very much, Garrett, for sharing your expertise and helping the listeners to understand the value of EIA's environmental impact assessments as a tool that would help us achieve sustainable development. So there you have it, folks. If you enjoyed this episode of the Climate Conscious Podcast, please rate and leave us a review and also share with your networks on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you very much.